And thank you for joining me this morning, Charles Moskowitz. Um, I'm continuing on here about the Jewish conspiracy theories. I want to, um, this is an ongoing topic for me, and I'm sure I'm going to be weighing in on this one um, throughout this year. But I want to reflect on what I'm learning right now and what my thinking is right now. And I see the Jewish conspiracy theories as breaking down into three different spheres. And uh, all of them, of course, interrelate with each other. But um, for the sake of, um, I suppose, you know, sociology, and I'm studying sociology right now in college, so I'm interested in how that works. I want to break it down to three categories as a way of examining it. The first category is is religious anti-Semitism, spiritual anti-Semitism. Um, that is, uh, it's primarily a Christian phenomena. And I think it's best expressed right now by respected scholar E. Michael Jones, whom I've had on this program. I've done a series with him. I admire his work. I completely think he's out to lunch on this one issue, which is uh, Judaism as a revolutionary spirit. But he is expressing traditional Christian anti-Judaism. Now, he makes a differentiation between anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism, which I think is well-placed. He points out that anti-Semitism has racist overtones, that somehow the Jewish people are biologically, you know, different than, than other people. And that's a whole area that I'm not even going to get into right now. That's not even part of my three categories. But I do not believe that that's, that's what, what Dr. Jones is about. I don't think that's what Catholicism or Christianity is about. It's, it's a religious objection. It's not racial. And that religious objection is that because the Jews um, were against the ministry of Jesus, because they rejected the messiahship of Jesus, and because they colluded with the Romans to execute Jesus, therefore they have lost or they have, they, they, they're anti-Logos because Jesus is the word according to St. John's Gospels and that he embodies both the, uh, the, 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 the order of civilization and, and faith and God in a, in a perfect balance. And thus when Jews rejected Jesus, they rejected Logos. And once they rejected Lagos, they became revolutionaries. They became subversive to the order of the world. That's Dr. Jones's premise. I think that is actually the traditional Catholic premise. Um, it was codified into Catholic canon law by St. Augustine of Hippo, who developed this concept of um, Siku Judeus Non, which uh, Dr. Jones thinks we should go back to. And what that says is that the Jew is to be left alone to worship without being molested or attacked, that his basic rights are to be respected, but in exchange, the Jew is not to intermingle with Christian society because he's, you know, he's corrupted, he's evil, I suppose, he's polluted. I think that uh, Dr. Jones quotes in his, the last chapter in his book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, an Irish Catholic Priests who wrote in the in the two, in the um, during, I think during the Second World War period, um, if his name escapes right now, Dennis Fagan or Dennis something like that, um, Dennis Fahey, that um, that the Jew is um, contaminated and that to be come into close contact with the Jew would lead to a, a, a devolution in morals for Christians. 
so that while Jews have to be respected and allowed to worship in peace, they should be separated. We shouldn't, you know, Christians shouldn't have too many dealings with Jews, if possible, and to try to avoid them. And that, of course, was the, uh, the Christian approach for a thousand years. I mean, you know, the putting Jews in the ghettos and restricting them and putting them under separate laws that, that would, uh, you know, have different requirements. They weren't allowed to own land. You know, there's all these other things to keep Jews separate. Um, and then, of course, concomitant with those laws, which gets me to my second premise here, was the fact that Jews were also allowed to live outside of the Catholic and Christian law. So they developed their own system of laws, almost like a separate, not a separate government, but I don't know, a separate autonomy, maybe like the way, uh, you know, the, I don't know, it's an imperfect example, but I suppose the Native Americans have autonomy in their reservations. The Jews had their own court system. They had their own leadership. They called them the Kahals. Um, the Kahilath was the community. And that this developed all across Europe. But the result is that the Jews were allowed to do certain things that Christians were discouraged from. And that includes lending and credit. You know, this is one of the areas that Jews were allowed to participate in. Now, I'm looking forward to reading Dr. Jones's new book, um, which deals with this subject, so I can't really comment on that right now. But what I do know is that um, because they were allowed to deal in credit, because they were allowed to trade, because they had contacts with Jews in all of the different nations of Europe, Jews were naturally became diplomats and they became traders and bankers. You know, they were allowed to lend money to the prince. And the prince had his court Jews who helped him run his administration because the Jew could provide him with money. And whereas Christians were banned from engaging in, in, um, in, in banking, although having said that, I think we should note that it was really the Italians who invented the modern banking system, the Venetians in particular, because they started to use checks, which was the first form of fiat currency, and that this would be further perfected by the Dutch. So it wasn't that Christians weren't involved in banking, they were, but the Jews were given a little bit more license in that area. Um, this has come to be misunderstood, by the way, as a claim that the Talmud allows for usury, which it does not, but it's just a, more of a fact on the ground, as it were, that Jews were allowed to engage in usury by the, um, by the Catholic Church and, and probably by later by Protestant churches. So that leads me to my second rung of Jewish conspiracy, and that is the banking conspiracy, that the Jews became international bankers and that they developed certain major Jewish international banking houses. The one that usually is particularly cited is the Rothschilds, but there were others like the Warburgs and the Lazards. And in the United States, they developed Jewish big, you know, private bankers like the Seligmans and the Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs. And that uh, these families were, they communicated with other Jewish families because Jews do have, you know, it is, there is something tribal there. I mean, we do tend to do business with each other, you know, as do a lot of uh, people. I'm not going to, you know, I don't think it's a formal thing, but, but that's something that exists. And Jews got into the, the, the whole scene of, of central banking and international banking in a big way. Did they control it? Probably not. 
I mean, the first major international bank was the Bank of England, and that was founded by Patterson, who was not a Jew. Um, and it was brought to England after the Glorious Revolution and the arrival of William of Orange, who became sovereign. Um, and that, that that is the bank that um, tried to uh, control the colonies, which had a lot to do with the American Revolution. It's a very interesting subject. It's a little beyond uh, what I want to talk about today. But the idea of international banking is one that I would argue is inherently corrupt because a nation, a sovereign nation state, ought to have its own ability and right to issue its own currency with its own sovereign stamped on the picture of the, of the bill. And we should be able to determine the value of that currency based upon the uh, production of their society, not a, a group of private bankers who then loan it to the government at interest. It's a terrible system. Um, and, and, you know, it's a whole different subject to get into, but it does manipulate the value of currency, and it does tend to put power, therefore, in the hands of these international elitists, bankers and investors in the banks, who do tend to, who are able to not only get extremely rich from this, but they're able to, in a very subtle way, control people and control how we function because they control the value of our dollar. It's a, I think it's a very wrong system. It's the one that predominates in the world today. It started, as I say, really in, in a major way with the Bank of England and the Bank of Amsterdam also. Were there Jews involved? Yes, but it was not a Jewish thing, I would argue. And the Rothschilds, I don't know much about them. I don't think too many of us do. What I do know about them is that they actually pay an ad agency, or at least they used to, to keep their name out of the news. They want to be, they're very private. And so we don't know a lot about them. Um, I don't think that they're probably particularly religiously Jewish. I doubt if they really identify even as Jews, particularly, you know, they, maybe they might be reform, I don't know. Um, they were not particularly pro-Israel either, with one exception. That is one member of the family, Edmund Rothschild, became pro-Israel, and he set up the Jewish National Fund, which purchased land in Palestine. And today, you know, which is perfectly legal and perfectly legitimate. And I believe that today, the Jewish National Fund actually owns, I think, something like 80% of, of Israel. And it, it leases it to, you know, businesses and, and, and private citizens and, and people to build housing and, and whatnot. So, you know, yeah, that, that one example. But the Rothschilds, I think, were just part of a, of a growing international banking establishment. The fact that they were Jewish was not relevant, really. Um, you know, whether they you observe the Sabbath on a, on a Saturday or a Sunday is not the point. The point is that they were international bankers, and they were manipulating the value of the currency of the United States and the rest of the world. They had a lot to do with the entrance to World War I, they had a lot to do with the Great Depression. They manipulate the currency in a way that, that benefits them and that uh, increases their informal power. And they, yes, they tend to be generally into world order and uh, the creation of not a one world government in the formal sense, but world transfer of governing authority from sovereign nation states 
with elected officials who represent the people of those nations to a, an informal, appointed, bureaucratic entity that operates on its own and that interacts and intersects with the same bureaucracies that exist in most major nations of the world. So, you know, I agree with that. The point is that the second piece, the economic piece, is not, does not constitute a Jewish conspiracy, um, I would argue. Now, this particular piece was advanced by none other than Karl Marx in his infamous pamphlet on the Jewish question, which would be republished as a world without Jews. Marx was, you know, generally speaking, the conspiracy theorists say that Marx was a Jew. Let me just briefly touch on this. I know I talked about it before. Marx was born a Jew. Um, his parents converted to, uh, I think, probably Lutheranism because he, he was a Prussian. Um, when he was, I think, three years old, he was baptized. He became a devout Christian as a young man. His first published book was a book talking about the Trinity and talking about the nature of Jesus. It was very religious and very Christian. And then he went to college where he was exposed to Hegelian metaphysics and, and, and um, the Enlightenment philosophers. And by the way, those people were not Jewish. Um, and he was influenced by that, and he came out of college a Marxist, <laughs> right? I mean, in a way, the same way that a lot of our young people today come out of college and they're Marxists. You know, he was exposed to the poisonous ideas of Marx. Um, and, and, well, at the time, the poisonous ideas of the Enlightenment. And he came out as, an, as a political internationalist and, and as someone who was into this whole bizarre agenda of turning the world into an ant colony. And um, he wrote this pamphlet after that and just before the Communist Manifesto, where he said that the Jews, he literally invented things like self-interest, huckstering, he called it, and the control of money. Now, by self-interest, he was talking about the normal and natural element of the human being that puts their own interests first, right? And that of their immediate family. That's normal. That's proper. That's natural. You can observe that in nature. Animals understand this, right? Plants understand this. But Marx wanted to destroy it in order to create this utopian collectivist beehive and he blamed the Jews. He said, it's the Jews who are doing this. So if we eliminate Judaism, or quote, make it impossible, then we can have, we can get rid of self-interest. Huckstering is just a word for free trade, the right to trade goods and services, which is, you know, certainly the Jews, I think, embrace that. Judaism does. And the Jewish people, I think, are, uh, do the, this is a good thing. I mean, they do that in a positive way. Marx felt that by eliminating Judaism, they would, that would fall under the control of the state, which would eventually turn the world into this automatic utopia where everyone would be de facto equal and there would be no need for trade. Everything people from the, the, the slogan of communism would come true from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. And that um, the idea of money being Jewish, of course, that's completely false. And it's ironic that Marx also was a supporter of central banks. I think he saw them as a vehicle to transfer power and transfer individual freedom away from the person and the state and eventually concentrated into an international system. Um, 
and that uh, the way to go about this was to get rid of Judaism, that Jews were involved in a conspiracy, and that the entire Marxist endeavor is based upon a grand conspiracy, a general conspiracy of exploitation, which is to say that the exploiters, and Marx viewed the Jews as part of that, um, are ripping off everyone else. They're exploiting working people. And that the way to get rid of them is to get rid of the exploiters, the what Marx called the bourgeoisie. And that they it, it's a conspiracy that has to be uncovered. And when people wake up and realize that they're being exploited, they will overthrow the bourgeoisie and you'll have a world paradise of workers. Now, that's you know, that conspiracy theory is grafted into a very specific Jewish conspiracy theory where Marx says that by getting rid of Judaism, you'll get rid of all of these things, private property. He, he thinks that Christianity was basically a Judaizing influence, as did Hitler, by the way, and that it would get rid of Christianity, it would get rid of the United States, and it would get rid of all the institutions that promote individual identity and progress in the real sense. And then the third rung, because I want to wrap it up here, of the Jewish conspiracy theory is the political theory, of course. So you have the spiritual theory, the traditional Christian theory, Jews as Christ killers are revolutionaries. You've got the economic theory, Jews control international banking. And the political theory has to do with kind of this very strange look at Zionism, which is becoming more open both on the left and on the right, and it has to do with Jews manipulating the world in such a way that they can create the state of Israel. And it's a theory that has gotten really way out there. I have this, there are these uh, YouTube videos making the rounds right now by this author, Jonathan Borkus, I think his name is. I put a request in to have him come on my show. I'd like to talk to him. Where he actually says that Hitler was a Zionist and that Hitler and the Jews conspired to engage in the Holocaust as a way of driving Jews to create the state of Israel. The, also, the other piece of the political theory is that Jews invented Bolshevism, of course, uh, and communism. Now, doc, Dr. Jones gets into this in his book, The uh, Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, where he basically blames, and by the way, this is conventional to conspiracy thinking, he blames Jews both for the invention of capitalism and communism, right? I suppose that's the economic piece and the political piece. And um, this guy, Borges, says that Hitler was basically a, 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 an apparatchik of the Zionists, which I think is completely insane. Um, you know, it's, it's crazy. Um, I'm going to have, have him on and, and I'm going to explore it, and I'll do so with an open mind. But, you know, he cites some obscure Kabbalistic, you know, figure that, that said something. Anyways, it's, it's, I think it's, it's way off base. I don't say he's crazy, but I shouldn't say that. But, but it's dangerous and it's wrong. Um, you know, he points to, the, for example, the transfer agreement, which was entered into by Zionists and the Nazis in 1933, um, which I think is totally supportable. It's so different than the, the, the Israel entering into an agreement with the Soviet Union in the 1970s to help Jews come to Israel. That's what that was about. That's what Zionism is about. The ingathering of the exiles, the return of the Jewish people to their ancestral homeland 
It's a political and a spiritual movement, and it's a modest movement. There's no claim of any area outside of the tiny state of Israel. That's another big lie, by the way. And that, um, you know, th those borders are delineated in the Torah, and those borders are pretty much exactly where Israel is today. Um, and, and it's a reasonable, natural, organic movement. It's, uh, you know, the, the uh, first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland, headed by Theodor Herzl, you know, yeah, they were socialists. Yes, they were on the left. And that there was this guy, Moses Hess, who wrote Roman Jerusalem, that was never accepted as a mainstream thinker in Jewish circles, even in left Jewish circles, who, you know, was somewhat strenuous in his race theories about Judaism. That was a reflection of thinking at that time. This was what Darwin was all about that. I mean, this is this was 19th century. This is the 19th century mind. I'm not going to apologize for that. I think it's wrong, and I reject his theories, but they were not pivotal to Zionism. Zionism is a religious movement and a political movement. It is the, the, the interest of the Jewish people to return and have sovereignty as an independent state so they can enjoy the benefits of any independent state. And it's also spiritual in that the return of the children of Israel to the Holy Land in the Torah you know, to, to do that, we're commanded to do it, fulfills a large portion of the Torah precepts and sets the stage for the coming of the Messiah. So these are, again, it's, there's nothing more or nothing less to Zionism and to Israel than simply the establishment of a sovereign, independent state in the Holy Land that God commanded us to take possession of. Nothing more and nothing less. But there's a lot of stuff weaving around about that, always has been. And I hope in the coming year as I do this program, and as hopefully this program grows, that I will have a chance to not only address it further, but to interview some of these people and do so respectfully and find out what makes them tick, why they believe what they do, and um, explore it. And maybe I'll learn something too. I'm open to all ideas. Anyway, thank you for joining me, everyone. You're certainly welcome to um, subscribe to my YouTube channel. I would urge you to do so. It's free. You can cancel anytime. I, I really hope to build that channel, uh, Charles Moskowitz, and have a great afternoon.